1: Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito.
2: Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, our special guest is Michael Kemmel. He's a leading expert on men and masculinity, a professor of sociology at the State University of New York, otherwise known as SUNY. And he is the author of many, many books and publications. Most recently, his book is *Guyland: The Perilous World Where Boys Become Men. Michael, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks, Cheryl. Nice to be here.
2: It's great to have you here. So the last time we met, you and I were at the Women's International Network Global Leadership Conference in Paris. It was about a month ago. And I, I was fortunate to... Hear you speak to this um, room full of women from around the world, business women, entrepreneurs, uh, NGO leaders, and you had the courage to talk about men and sexism. That was pretty fascinating.
3: Well, I I was honored to be there and you know to to be invited to speak and yeah, it was pretty much it was it was pretty interesting to. In front of you know seven hundred and fifty, you know uh, really high power women uh, about you know where the men are in, in their lives. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess, but I guess you and I can now always say we'll always have Paris.
2: <laughs> oh, that sounds so romantic.
3: <laughs>
2: now, isn't that a sexy thing to say? Correct. Now, you know, I, I I joke about this, but you have really made the study of men and masculinity um, something way beyond stereotype. Talk to us a little bit about why you initially. Became even interested in, in this whole concept of
3: men and masculinity. Um, well, I became interested in it partly because um, it, it you know it wasn't the kind of thing where I went looking for something to study. Um, I actually did my uh, Ph.D. on 17th century French history, not no nothing about masculinity, gender, women, anything of the kind in it. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, but this is this topic kind of found me. And the reason it found me is because there were so many women that I met and that I knew who were talking about um, women's equality in the workplace, women's equality at home, uh, sexual violence rape pornography uh, um, uh, all of the different issues that sort of that, that were raised you know some thirty forty years ago around feminism right. suddenly everybody I knew was talking about them and it you know and Occasionally, it occurred to me that the, the conversation seemed somewhat, you know, sort of one-sided. Like, all these women were taking on all of these issues, and they were talking about the impact of, you know, gender inequality on them as women. And nobody, you know, and, and then they kept saying, you guys really have to start talking about it. And the men were like, who, us? Why would we <laughs> want to talk about that? Mm-hmm. You know, you, go, you, you, you ladies go ahead and do your thing, but we're fine the way we are. Uh-huh. And. And It gradually occurred to me that that was so dishonest that there was a conversation that was just begging, just crying out to happen, which was a conversation about what, um, what it means to be a man and how what it means to be a man has not only had this impact that you all were talking about on women, but the impact of what it means to be a man on men that mm-hmm. what we thought, what we inherited from our fathers and grandfathers that we thought would make us feel like real men actually make it harder for us to be the kind of workers that we want to be, the kind of professionals, the kind of employees that we want to be in the 21st century. It makes it harder for us to be the kind of husbands we want to be, um, mm-hmm. the kind who are supportive of our wives in their careers, who are supportive of our wives you know, in, in sort of emotional growth, professional growth, it makes it harder for us to be the kind of fathers we want to be because we're absentee landlords at home. We're never there. Mm-hmm. We're always, you know, sort of working. Um, and, and, and the idea of masculinity means that you're so emotionally shut down. You know, um, guys would say things, you know, wh- when their when partners or wives would say things like, well, tell me what you feel. Men would say things, well, well just tell me what to feel and I'll feel it. <laughs> um, you know, so, so what are the costs to men Mm-hmm. of this ideology of masculinity. You all spent a very a good amount of time, and rightly so, talking about the, the effect of what it means to be a man on you. But men hadn't done it. and it said, I said, you know, we've got to have this conversation, guys. We've got to start talking about what this mm-hmm. means. And so I started thinking about it. I started becoming politically active, first around violence uh, and sexual violence, and later uh, around workplaces and corporate settings. In which I said, you know, there has been this conversation going on among women about gender issues for 30 years, and we men have thought it had nothing to do with us, and it has everything to do with us, and we have got to start talking about the impact or the importance of gender equality for men. And that's what I do when I work with corporations. Mm. That's what I do when I when I talk in in uh, you know in in uh, various NGOs, whatever, wherever to to uh, you know senior managers or to Um, to employees about, you know, engaging in this Mm -hmm. conversation about gender equality Mm -hmm. as men. What's in it for us?
2: Well, and how much do you think um, this whole thing, I mean, there's a lot of talk about that this is hardwired into us, you know, the whole concept of the male being the hunter and the female staying home and nurturing the home fires, et cetera, I mean, Is this actually something that
3: is in our biology? Well, um, I have read very carefully uh, the evidence, the biological evidence for difference, and I find it, as a scientist, uh, unpersuasive. Um, There is no trait, attitude, or behavior that is, as we would say, categorical, that all men and only men possess and no women, or that Mm -hmm. all women and only women and no men possess, just on any of those. So so you're always going to be talking about tendencies and overlaps and distributions, and that's a different conversation. Hmm. Um, The second thing is... Um, you know having read that literature I think um, I think we like to think that we're hardwired for certain things but let me just ask you ask ask a rhetorical question mm-hmm. so let's just say that men are hardwired because of testosterone or evolution or bio, or some other brain chemistry whatever you want to call it, to talk about to be more aggressive it's testosterone whatever more aggressive more dyna- you know more dominant etc Do you think these same naturally hardwired, dominant, aggressive men are going to be dominant and hardwired to be aggressive when they're being talked to by their boss? Of course not. They're going to be obsequious. They're going to be, you know, placating. They're going to be consensus building. And they're going to be very passive yes men. Why? Because it doesn't really matter what the gender is. What matters is the power dynamic and very often we mistake power and power imbalance for gender because men are in power and women aren't hmm. but let me tell you male secretaries and female bosses you know b- b- believe me the truth is bosses are from mars secretaries are from venus and it doesn't <laughs> matter their gender that's
2: interesting Well, and it does make a lot of sense, and so then it begs the question of, you know, how did the power dynamic get
3: set up? Let me let me just ask you one. Let me just point out one other thing about the biology. Mm -hmm. If it were all biological, and I I take the position that you know biology gives us raw material, but it doesn't tell us how Mm -hmm. to shape it. You know, Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. it's it's clay, but it's not a sculpture, right? Right. Right. But so if it were all biological, Mm -hmm. here's my question for you: Why is it that the entire apparatus of our entire culture is designed from the day we're born, even before we're born, to make boys and girls different. So what they wear, what they play with, mm-hmm. what songs mm-hmm. they sing, what they, you know, mm-hmm. how they interact, we constantly are telling them, this is what boys are supposed to do, right. this is what girls are supposed to do. Dress the boys in blue, go out and skin your knees, play with trucks and, 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 and guns. Mm-hmm. Here's what girls can do, dress them up frilly, give them a tea set, don't let them skin their knees, and then you wonder why they're different? Well, mm-hmm. it seems to me that if we were so biologically hardwired, you could put them all in, you know, in, in, in sort of, you know, white overalls, and they would turn out differently. Right, right. right? But we have, the, we have set the entire apparatus. I mean, you know, don't believe me. Take a walk through Toys R Us sometime. Oh, sure. It's like yeah. the Red Sea. There's this big gap in the middle, and one side is Barbie land, and the mm-hmm. other side is guns, to- mm-hmm. guns and, and sports. Right. You know, right. and and you wouldn't have to do that. I mean, you don't have to coerce gravity. It does what it does, <laughs> right? Because it's natural, <laughs> right? But you have to and you don't have to coerce cats and dogs to behave the way they do, right? You don't have to socialize them to behave the way they do. They behave the way they do. But but people, the you know, everything about it is completely um cultural. So, mm. you know, so if it is biological, we don't trust it very much. <laughs> well,
2: you know, it uh, it makes me think of um many, many parents uh you know, people in my generation. Um you know, we grew up with peace, love, rock and roll and um, you know women can be anything they want and and then many went on to have kids and when they started having kids they were trying to be so conscious of not um, leading them into the male-female role letting them do whatever yeah, they wanted sure. to do and then they'd say but he wants to play with trucks. We don't bring trucks to him, but he wants to play with trucks. He sure. pretends like he's shooting things up. She wants to dress in frilly things, etc. And and they, the parents were just perplexed. How is this happening? Because we are not introducing this to them. And so you know, there was there was more anecdotal kinds of evidence that you know this must be hardwired. And sure. so how do you explain that? I mean, I mean, is it like in the air
3: <laughs> well it's in the water that we're drinking and the air right. that we're breathing i mean unless these children of your of these sort of gender equal parents were living in a complete bubble with right. no media whatsoever right. then you'd wonder but of right. course you don't wonder you don't wonder because even though they're giving little sally trucks to play with and they're giving little johnny a barbie doll she still stays home and does all the housework, childcare, cooking, cleaning, etc. While he plays golf on the weekend, and then they wonder why the kids come out different. Hmm. You know, number two, you know, do they go to school? Do they have any friends? Do they ever watch anything, including Sesame Street? Well, then they're going to see gender difference sure. portrayed as ni- as natural. Sure. You know, sure. that's. I mean, it's it's everywhere you look. I mean, I'm frequently asked by by parents. Um, how do I shield my kid from this? And I look at them and i like, what, what, are you crazy? You can't. That's not the, that's not the mm-hmm. right question. Mm-hmm. It's not the, the right question isn't how do you shield your kid from it, but it's how do you engage with your child in, with these media that you know they will be exposed to so that, so that you are able in some ways to have some kind of countervailing force because you're not going to eliminate it. You're not going to shield them from it. And who would want to anyway? There's a lot of good stuff there. Hmm.
2: That's a really good point. So you have had many um, publications over the years looking at things like gender differences, looking at you know how gender plays out in society, um, manhood in America. Um, you even edited an encyclopedia of men Mm. and masculinities and a handbook on studies of men and masculinities. I mean, you have drilled so deeply into this. Um, And you've even become a spokesperson of an organization called the National Organization for Men Against Sexism. Right. Um, And I found that interesting because the, the... Organization for Men Against Sexism is described as pro-feminist, gay-affirmative, anti-racist, and dedicated to enhancing men's lives. Talk a little bit about this, because, you know, when when people hear the concept men against sexism, almost immediately what comes up is, you've got to be kidding me, right? Mm-hmm. The whole concept of, this must be about men feeling discriminated against, and ah, that—that's right.
3: that, sure. that, not what this is about at all. So tell us. No, about this. Um, no. This is the other side of that. In, in, in fact, um, I I believe that um, that what what gender equality promises is actually um, a, a great thing for men. Uh, what gender equality promises. Is the very thing that men need to to live the lives that they want to live. So this isn't, um, a, you know, sort of a, a return to sort of the old way. Um, mm-hmm. What 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 I believe is that you know that that what gender equality actually means is maybe the best thing that's ever happened for men, um, because what it means for us is finally being able to um, have the kind of relationships mm-hmm. that we have been saying we want all along. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this, you know it, this, is, this is actually based on actually listening to real men yeah. talk about the kinds of lives they want to have, the kind of relationships with their children that they say they want. And my contention is the only way we are going to be able to have those kinds of relationships, the only way we're going to be able to live the lives that we as men say we want to live is to support gender equality. And that's to support it at home or in the workplace. Um, because that, it, it, uh, because that's the the only way that we can uh, begin to have the kind of uh, conversations with our with our families with our children that we in fact say we want. Hmm. And what are those kinds of relationships that men say they want? Well, this is the really good news. I mean, men say not only do they say, but they are actually living, you know, relationships that in some ways they're. Their, their, uh, you know, fathers would have found somewhat incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, men are much better, uh, you know, friends today with women than they ever have been. Um, it's the biggest change among young people, for example, uh, around the country. Is that you know, uh, uh, just twenty years ago when I started uh, teaching about this sort of stuff, um, I would ask my uh, my students, how many of you have a good friend of the opposite sex? Maybe ten percent. Now, rarely do I get a student who doesn't, um, and you don't make friends with people who are significantly unequal. You know, you mm-hmm. make friends with people who are your equals. Sure. So, so that gives you an indication that gender equality has actually turned out to be a pretty good thing for men. Mm-hmm. Um, we're able to be friends across gender in, in a way that, you know, I'm, uh, you know, we're from the Harry Met Sally generation, right? Right. So, right. You know women and men can't be friends because sex always gets in the way well ask ask kids ask 20 25 year olds right. they all have cross-sex friends they do
2: it's a very interesting generation well, we have more to talk about with michael kimmel when we come right back
1: Consulting, Developing leaders worldwide. In the United States today, women make up the majority of the workforce
0: and the general population. It's time to lead and leverage this influence. Succeed Like a Woman with host Rhonda Jones Sparks will address topics that are relevant to women at any stage of their lives. From starting their career to leadership at the top. We'll hear from the most prominent women leaders who will offer support and guidance and common sense advice to help you fulfill your leadership potential. Tune in to Succeed Like a Woman with Rhonda Jones Sparks every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Business. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
1: We appreciate you joining our Leading Conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl.
2: And welcome back to Leading Conversations. We're speaking with Michael Kimmel today, author of Guy Land, The Perilous World Where Boys Become Men. So, Michael, let's talk about this most recent book that you've written. Um, You actually interviewed more than 400 young men, ages 16 to 26, for this. Talk about the premise for this
3: book. Well, the premise for this book is... is, uh Pretty simple. Um, we we have begun uh, to uh, observe, as in sort of a- academia, or whatever. We've begun to observe that there is a new stage of development in between adolescence and adulthood. Um, in 1950, you know, or so fifty or so years ago, people got married at 20, finished their education at 21, got their jobs, got married, had a kid, uh, bought a house, um, you know, all those things in pretty short order, uh, and the average age of marriage in 1950 was about 20.3. Today, it's about 28.2. So what's happened in that ensuing eight years is that we have developed a new stage of development. People are delaying getting married, getting, uh, committing to careers, having children, all until their late 20s, early 30s. But we haven't adequately mapped this new stage of development. That's what Guyland tries to do. Um, why? You know, it's a stage of development that's true for both males and females. So I call it Guyland in a particular way because I want to. I want to sort of suggest some of the ways in which gender is one of the most important. You know, sort of operating principles within this Hmm. stage of development proving your manhood is one of the animating things that happens to young men so i interviewed about four hundred young people ages sixteen to twenty six around the country um, most were white college students, uh, some were, you know, working class guys, some were guys of color, but mostly, you know, white working class guys at large public institutions like University of Indiana, Oklahoma, Ohio State, Michigan, Michigan State, places like that There were big, large public universities in the Midwest and South, um, which are sort of the defining, you know, char- have the defining characteristics of college you know, the sort of the mm-hmm. collegiate experience. Right. And so I wanted to get a sense of what they thought it meant to be a man and how, they, how it differed from my generation, um, what, what it means for them within this new stage of development. Uh, and mostly I was, I was, I was, I was uh, sort of inspired to do this by the conversation I kept having with my colleagues all across the country. And that was, and this is something that you probably see in management circles, in business circles as well, mm-hmm. and, and that is, they, the, my colleagues were constantly telling me, you know, the women in my classes, they are really focused, they are really goal oriented, they know just where they're going. They, they know, they can tell you how old they're going to be when they have their first kid, and the and the men are kind of drifting. They don't really have a purpose, a sense of of how to build a life plan. You know, they don't have a kind of sense of a ladder. They move laterally from one job to another. They just, you know, they're they're and, and so. What's going on here? Why are the men so clueless and drifting, and the women so focused and ambitious? What's happened here? And of course, your your friends who think it's biological, they're you know they're having conniptions because they don't know right. what the hell's going on, right? So what what is going on? Why are the women so focused and ambitious and assertive, and you know running circles around the guys on the soccer field, and the guys are going, you know, and they have their baseball hats turned around and they they say it's all good. You know, and they don't really have a a, a, a plan. Hmm. So I wanted to understand that, and that's why I went out and started interviewing uh, the the young people.
2: Hmm. So what was their first surprise in this? Uh,
3: well, the first uh, the first surprise, of course, is that um, young men uh, age, you know, when they, especially when they go off to college, have been very very, very parented, you know, you know that critique of helicopter parenting, sure. you know. um, very parented, and then they go off to school, and they're desperate to sort of show that they're real men, to find friends, to bond with other guys, and they are, and they, they are asked in most, in, case, in these cases, to basically be 18-year-olds proving their masculinity to 19-year-olds, and that's just not going to work. So increasingly, they're asked to do more and more radical things, more and more risk-taking things, mm. more and more stupid things, right. um, which they're asked to do to prove their masculinity, which they do because they're desperate to prove their masculinity, and which, of course, doesn't end up adding up for them at all. Mm. Um, and so the first thing that I was surprised at, or, or the first thing that I was sort of interested to see, is the operation of two, uh, two, two expressions. These are... Your, your listeners will want to know the two expressions that, that you would hear most often among guys on college campuses or in their early 20s or pretty much anywhere in the country. Mm-hmm. The first one is that's so gay. They use it constantly to criticize each other, to police each other, to make sure that they're all conforming to some model of masculinity that they, wow. they inherited that, that was done to them. Again, if it was so biological, we wouldn't need all this coercion, but we do. Mm-hmm. So Um, That's so gay. What you're wearing is so gay. What you're studying is so gay. That you're studying is so gay. That you even care about this girl is so gay. Everything is so gay. That's the first thing. The second thing is the expression, bros before hoes. That the bonds of brotherhood with other men, your bros, is more important than your relationship with any woman anywhere. Um, Guys always, you know, the, the bonds of brotherhood are the important bonds of your life. Um, And that expression, I'm telling you, you you would hear it on every college campus. And that is why guys don't stand up, they don't speak up when they hear about sketchy stuff, when they hear about sexual assaults or guys trying to get women drunk so they can have sex with them or whatever. When they hear this stuff, they're told, be quiet, bros before hoes. And they don't speak up. And that, I believe, this this goes back to our earlier conversation, Mm -hmm. that does tremendous damage to them. It does damage to them ethically. does damage to them you know, psychologically. What mm-hmm. does it mean that I acted immorally? I know I contradicted my own values, my relationship to my, my, my God, mm-hmm. my relationship to, to you know, some spiritual core values when I didn't do the right thing, when I know I did the wrong thing, when I didn't speak up, when I didn't stand up, when I didn't intervene. What kind of psychic cost is it that we are asking of young men to contradict their values, um, so that in the name of masculinity. And so I think that's really what I was trying to to, to explain in this book. You know, that makes me think about what goes on in
2: um, gangs, you know, in um, neighborhood gangs and. How they're all about proving their loyalty and proving that they, they can belong. I mean, this is very much like gang behavior.
3: Sure, sure. And there is there there, there are some sociologists who have basic, who have basically thought that uh, gang behavior and uh, is just the, the 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 working class version of what fraternities do, which is the middle right. class version of it. Um, they and and the the dynamic that's similar, of course, is that you extract from members a certain kind of unquestioning loyalty. Mm -hmm. And if they don't provide that loyalty, you accuse them of not being your brother.
2: Well, did you have the opportunity to speak with, when you did these interviews, um, to speak with young men who had indeed um, not stood up when something potentially horrific had occurred? Oh, sure. Yeah, And what did they tell you?
3: Uh, Well, they told me, you know, I talked to guys who who didn't, you know, sort of didn't do anything later, you know, in their, you know, later in their lives when they look back on it and they think, oh, you know, dear, that you know, that was, you know, I really, I really, you know, missed an opportunity, and I'm so, I'm, and I'm embarrassed about it now. I'm ashamed that I didn't, you know, I wish I had. I talked, you know, I, I talked to some fraternity guys who were on trial as accomplices to murder. Because during a hazing incident, one of their pledges died of alcohol poisoning. And now, you know, now that they're sort of sober and they're actually looking at what they did, um, they think, you know, this wasn't fun. This wasn't funny. This was serious. You know, somebody died. I'm going to live with this for the rest of my life. I'm so ashamed of it. And now they're campaigning against hazing. The the young men themselves? Yeah,
2: Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I, mean, that. I mean, that's fascinating to me that, you know, because that, that is not what is being presented <clears throat> from the colleges. What do you mean? Well, and, and universities, it seems like, you know, for years and years, have always known hazing's hey,
3: gone on and have kind of turned a blind eye. Ah, you well, know? you know, some of if they turn a blind eye. In pa- I, see, I don't think they turn a blind eye. I think they turn an open eye. I think they know full well what's going on. But here's Mm -hmm. the problem. Every, you know, and this is a problem, um, you know, especially at the sort of the wealthy private universities, you know. uh, In the United States, for example, schools like uh, Colgate and uh, Dartmouth Mm -hmm. um, have tried in the past couple of years to rein in some of the fraternities, but they run up against another problem. Universities are not simply students, faculty, administrators, and parents. They're also alumni, and the, mm, alumni, right, uh, right. the alumni absolutely say, especially at the private schools, sure, you close that fraternity, we will never give you another penny. Right, and right. University, private universities, they rely on that money. Right. Um, and so the, the power of alumni, and the alumni are absolutely, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm going to state this really strongly, they're quite deluded because they think, they say something like, well... The stuff that happened to me in that fraternity, that, mm-hmm. made, me, that made me the man I am today. Right. Well, I'm right. sorry to say, it didn't. That yeah. didn't make you a man. In fact, that is, you are suffering from post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. It's called the Stockholm Syndrome, where you were tortured, and you now identify with your torturer. Those are strong words, Michael. They are. But that's yeah. what, But these guys are saying, that's what made me a man. I don't think so. The fact that you got a really classy education, that made you the man you are today. The fact that your parents had boatloads of money, that made you the man you are today. Mm -hmm. But it's surely not being tortured, you know, when you were in college. That did not make you the man you are today. Well,
2: and so, you know, how do we make the shift? I mean, this is a huge problem. And any time that the bottom line is about, you know, following the dollars... It seems like we in our society in this time in our world have trouble separating it out, you know, so we
3: kind of look away. Well, Well, let me me put it in a somewhat different, more sort of corporate um, and leadership uh, context. Um, If you have been asked to sacrifice your values for the sake of the brotherhood and have done so and Mm -hmm. don't feel apologetic, about it, don't have any kind of self-reflection about it. What kind of leader is that going to make you? Right. Someone who is right. willing to sacrifice principle right. for you know for being for for, for, uh, for to make sure to make other people like you. You know that's not going to make you a particularly effective or honorable, uh, maybe effective, but certainly not honorable leader, is it? Right.
2: No. So, not at
3: so all. My, my sense is that this isn't the kind of person I want running a company. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, I want somebody who is willing to do the right thing.
2: Well, so talk to me about leaders that you have engaged with who um, may have shared with you um, that they've had experiences like this and how it has affected them, Mm -hmm. you know, 10, 20, 30 years later um, as they are running corporations, you know, as they are trying to lead
3: thousands of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, did t- I have talked with, with many CEOs and university presidents, and they all have, kind of, you know, they all have a story about, I mean, they, they, there's two things. First, they have a story about something that they did that was wrong, that, enga- that basically led them to a moment of kind of self-reflection. Mm-hmm. Or self-understanding and a kind of commitment not to do it again, or you know, to, to sort of you know to sort of be thought be more thoughtful, um, and and so and I'll tell you one story about that, and then the second the second is I talk to a lot of you know uh, men who are in in, in leadership positions who said, you know, I, I need to do the right thing now, um, you know, regardless of what was done before. Um, so, for example, there's a, there are a couple of national fraternities that I've been working with that have eliminated hazing, that have eliminated pledging, that, you know, you want to join, you're in. Here's, now, we'll, now we'll talk about citizenship mm-hmm, and honor. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. That's a very different kind of conversation. Right, right. Um, the, the president of the University of Wisconsin, for example, has been so concerned about... Uh, about um, you know, binge drinking on campus. That he has a new po- There's a new policy that says if you are um, if you are or, you know arrested for or you know or um, caught with for any kind of alcohol related infraction, um, you and your parents will go through an alcohol awareness um, mm. workshop before you can be readmitted to the school. So that says, okay, this is not just your problem, you know, right. teenagers. This is our problem. We're going to take responsibility, and your parents are going to be brought into this. We're all going to solve this problem together. So, I mean, those are, those are people who I think are, uh, th- th- those are groups or people that are standing up. And let me give you one other illustration of this. Mm-hmm. I was watching this, this uh, documentary. Uh, about Noam Chomsky, the linguist at MIT. Now, right. Noam Chomsky is, you know, I, I mean, he's, the, he's arguably the greatest linguist in history, but surely the greatest of the 20th century. I mean, he's just, a, you know, but he also has the most, you know, like way out there politics. He's constantly a thorn in the side of the administration, no matter who's in power, you know, about these obscure groups that are being, you know, heard and assaulted and decimated by the, the, the sort of the steamroller of development, whatever. I mean, and so the interviewer says to him, it's like, why do you do it? I mean, look, you're the best linguist ever. Um, you know, you could be very happy at MIT just you know, sort of doing linguistics. What, what, what's with you? Why do you keep doing this? And he says, he doesn't even skip a beat. He says, you know, when I was six years old, I think, I think he says six, maybe eight. He says, when I, was, when I was a little boy, there was this fat kid in my school who the bullies used to pick on. And one day they came up to him in school and they said to him, you wait for us in the playground, we're going to come over and beat you up. You know, and that little boy did what you know, every other little boy who's been bullied does. You know? He sort of faced a choice. Does he, does he show up and take it mm-hmm. or, does he, or does he run away and you know, prove that they were right to target him in the first place? Mm-hmm. So Chomsky start, gets you know, into school, he's walking through the playground and he sees the little boy standing in the corner of the playground alone. And he says to himself, you know, he shouldn't be alone. I should go stand with him and be with him. You know, that's, what's happening is wrong. So he goes over and he stands by this boy. And then he sees the bullies coming. And he runs away. Mm-hmm. And he says, I was so ashamed. Now this is like eight years old, right? He says, I was so ashamed of what I did. I vowed at that moment I would never again abandon the little guy. I mm-hmm. would always stick up for them. You know, I was so ashamed. Now, here's my, uh, my point to you. Many, many of the CEOs, many of the top-level administrators that I have spoken with over the past 10 years as I've been working with companies have stories like that saying, you know, w- you know I, I saw something that was wrong. I didn't do something about it. And I said, never again, man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the right thing. And I think that's what makes them leaders and effective leaders. And so acting on what is core
2: seems to be key to a success here. We have more to talk about with Michael Kimmel, author of Guy Land, The Perilous World Where Boys Become Men, when we come right back.
1: consulting developing leaders worldwide
0: quick who are three successful leaders you admire Perhaps Oprah, Sir Richard Branson. Who'd be your three choices? Was your name on the list? If not, why not? What's keeping you off that list? Tune in to Leadership, Success, and You, featuring your host, Dr. Alwyn Pierre. Are you ready to unlock a faster and more powerful path to success? The keys to uncommon success lie in having the right mindset, strategy, and execution. Learn how to get that raise, win that contract, add an extra zero to your income. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on The Voice America business Business Channel and discover the leader within to win. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business
1: Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl.
2: Well, we're back with Michael Kimmel. So, Michael, let's talk a bit about the collusion of women in this whole process of how men show up in the world. Um, You know, women themselves, I've noticed, often have a tough time saying, I'm a feminist, right? They say, oh, I believe in equality, I believe in gender rights, and oh, but I'm not a feminist, I'm not one of those, and so I find it interesting that um, there is issue with that, you know, and it's not only issue with men saying that, but there's issue with women saying that. You know, what's the deal here?
3: Um, you know, I think it's, you know, it's, it, it's, a, it's a fiction to think that just because, you know, that men are confused about, you know, gender issues and stuff, but women have it all together. We're right. all confused about this. Um, the, you know it 's very confusing we 're living at a time of unbelievable transformation mm-hmm. that 's really i mean that 's overwhelming and really fast um, I mean you think about uh, the the, the, t- the changes that have happened in our own lifetimes it 's just massive. Um, and so, of course, women and men are confused about this um, together. And so, of course, women are going to, you know, they're going to say that, you know, this is the, this is the question I, I have to say that, that I'm, I'm asked most often on college campuses by men, is the, the question is, um, listen, we keep hearing from women that they want us to be more sensitive and more engaged and more, more talk about our feelings and be nicer. So I become really nice and sensitive and I listen to women and I can't get a date. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. what's going on with women? And, of course, you know, women, women uh, are equally confused about this. The only difference between women and men on this question is that women have been smart enough to say, you know, we're confused about this and we can't figure it out alone. Let's have a whole movement <laughs> in order to figure it out. And men still <laughs> think, hey, listen, I'm a cowboy. I'll take care of it myself. You know, I can, I can do this. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks for bringing it to my attention. You know, and so, so I think that the next step in this evolution of gender awareness and gender equality is for men to start talking to each other about this sort of stuff Um, you know Oh, by the way just as a parenthesis the question I'm asked most often by women which relates to what we were talking about earlier um, the question I'm asked most often by women on college campuses is they say something like this my boyfriend when I'm with him by myself he is so attentive and so caring and he really listens to me and he's really sensitive But when he's with a bunch of his guy friends, he says the most sexist, racist stuff. What is up with guys in groups? And, of course, Mm -hmm. that's the bros before hoes thing that I was talking about before. Sure, sure. So they have similar questions. And I, I think it's important for us to realize that, yes, of course, it's true that women are confused about this, that women often give men mixed messages. But when I ask men, and this is the key, when I ask men, whose voice do you hear? When you hear someone say, man up, or be a man, mm-hmm. or any of those things, it's a man's voice. It's that so gay. Mm-hmm. It's that same thing about, you know, it's, it, it's your father, your coach, your older brother, your mm-hmm. male friends. That's whose voice you hear.
2: Well, now, when you did the interviews for the book, Guy Land, were any of those young men gay?
3: Uh, a few of them. Why?
2: Well, do they have the same um, experiences, you know? Yeah,
3: I'm often asked if there was, like, gay land (laughs) 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 as well as guy land. And and the answer to the question, actually, is um, what I was trying to describe is the dominant model of masculinity on these college campuses. Right, right. Um, And so, of course, you know, black men, Latino men, gay men, Jewish men, uh, evangelical Christian men all construct a masculinity that's in some relationship to that, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily, you know, the same as it. So what I was trying to do is trying to map that center, the one that, you know, when I say I'm different from other men, Mm -hmm. I want you to know what the other men are, what it Mm -hmm. is that I'm saying I'm different from. Um, because I think that's really important, too. What is the dominant model that everybody has to deal with, everyone has mm-hmm, to contend with?
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
3: Well, I'd imagine that young men who are gay,
2: um, especially if they have not come out and they are floating in college you know, and, and involved with um, other guys who are straight who who have this culture uh, where everybody is saying that's so gay, Um, this must have an amazingly destructive um, effect on them in a different way.
3: Yeah, I think.
2: Yeah.
3: I mean, I think that that's right.
2: Yeah. So, you know, we need to change this. And you say we need to get men talking about this. Um, You know, what are some of the ways that you have...
3: Gotten men to start talking about this. Well, I, you know, I've done everything from running groups and workshops with, uh, you know, with with young men talking about uh, what it means to be a man and how how it's worked itself out in our lives. Uh, I do workshops in corporations about how to engage men in the conversations about gender equality. I've done stuff about, you know, so so it depends. I mean, I've had I've run groups, you know, in in workplaces. Like the European Space Agency, I did a, a sort of a, a group around fatherhood, um, how men can, you know, how what does it mean when we think, uh, how do we think, do we think as men, do we think as workers, or do we think as fathers? You know, I think women very often are encouraged to think as mothers, um, and I think if men started thinking as fathers, there would be far fewer wars. <laughs> there you go. Yeah,
2: well, you know, great leaders uh, around the world for eons have said um, if women were in charge there would be no wars. Um, with the implication with the well right, yeah. with the implication being that they would never send their their
3: children into war. Um, um, you know, I don't I don't think I understood that. I, I, I understood that abstractly until I, I myself had a kid. At which mm. point I, was, I think about it and I look at him and I think to myself, you know, good grief, you know, what is it, what would it mean to send him to war? Right, right. You know, um, isn't there any other way we could resolve this? <laughs> 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 can, can we figure out something else? Can we have a conversation? Uh, you know. One would think, one would think.
2: Well, there's so many issues, you know, I mean, we could talk for another hour about the specific um, issues and the specific benefits uh, to men's lives. Um, give us a couple of your top, out of your list of, you know, however many there are, um, a couple
3: of top benefits to men. Uh, well, we, this is where we began our conversation. First of all, I think that the, the more, um, they, and, and by the way, the, the evidence here is overwhelming, uh, that there's really good data about this. The more egalitarian men are in their marriages, for example, the more housework, the more childcare men actually do, um, their children are happier, their children are healthier, their children do better in school, their children are less likely to be diagnosed with ADHD, their children are less likely to take medication, see therapists. Their wives are happier and healthier. Their wives are, you know, uh, report higher levels of marital satisfaction. The men say they have better friendships. The men are healthier. They go to doctors for routine screenings more often, but go to, but go to emergency rooms less often. They're less likely to dr- drink and smoke and take recreational drugs. They're more likely to take care of themselves, stay fit. Um, you know, the benefits just go on and on. The reality is that gender equality is really good for men. <laughs>
2: Really good and for good men. And good for women
3: and good for their kids. You know, right. this is no, so, so here's, the bi- here's the bottom line of my argument. Um, we are told that men are from Mars and women are from Venus and that we are basically fighting an intergalactic war between the sexes. Mm. And I argue that we're both from planet Earth, that we are far more similar than we are different, mm. and that, when, that, that um, gender equality is not a, g- a zero-sum game, mm. but it's actually a win-win that women and men both benefit the more equal we are.
2: So if that's so, then we need parents
3: who are treating their kids differently. Well, we need parents who are treating, um, who, you know, I'm not interested in the the notion of degendering people, you know, androgyny, men and women being all the same. What I'm interested in is degendering traits and attitudes and behaviors. So, for example, we live in a culture where to be ambitious and assertive and competitive is, is understood to be masculine. So, 30, 40 years ago, women said, that's crazy. We're nurturing and caring and loving. Those are feminine characteristics. But we're also assertive and competitive and ambitious. Why not? Um, we want to be whole human beings. And that's what the women's movement was about. And women entered the corporation, entered entered the professions in unprecedented numbers. And you know what? They haven't said to themselves, you know what? We're not really ambitious and, and assertive and competitive. Let's go back home. They haven't said that at all. So here's the part that's missing. So men need to also say, yes, we've coded ambition and competition and assertiveness as masculine. But we are also nurturing and loving and caring. That's part of being human. And we have suppressed that. We have cut ourselves off from that. So I'm interested in degendering the traits. I'm interested in saying assertiveness and ambition, those are human traits. Nurturing and caring, those are human traits, not gendered. But the people who do them, I love the fact that women and men are different. <laughs> you know, don't get me wrong. I think that's right. great. But, but we're not different on levels, you know, we're not different that women are, not, are nurturing and men are competitive only. Right, right. So it's a
2: lot about learned behavior. Mm-hmm. Well, I've, I think that we're going to have more to talk about with you um, over the years. Uh, as this evolves, it'll be interesting to see how much of a dent we can make in this as a society. So, Michael, people will want to know um, how to learn more about this and
3: where they can buy your book and how to contact you. What can they do? Uh, easy. Uh, I am, uh, I'm easily available, uh, michaelkimmel.com is my website um, and uh, I'm happy to, you know, to hear from listeners um, about any of these kinds of issues Great
2: The book is Guyland The Perilous World Where Boys Become Men Michael Kimmel, thanks for being here today It's been great having a conversation with you
3: My pleasure
2: And remember everyone, think big The world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters This is Cheryl Esposito
1: Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.a l e x a c o n s u l t i n g.com. Alexa Developing Leaders Worldwide.